Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tatsa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Aparuta de sangamatasa tawara ye sodavanta bamunjantu sadhang So this is uh, after the uh, this uh, ordination ceremony. It's, uh, this is the first uh, kind of bhikkhu ordination that we performed in this uh, temple. Uh, we, we had uh, Sinadara ordination last year, and this was the first time bhikkhu uh, ordination took place. So that's the first. I mean, they have a temple, a place that we usually have our ordinations down at Chitterst, out on the uh, lawn, outside. And uh, that was the original way of doing it, when the Buddha established the uh, ordination procedure, usually pointed to to designate a, a, an area, like where this tree and that rock, and then that would become fixed as an ordination boundary. And then what you see here is a kind of advancement on that principle where these uh, these lotus lotus stones you see um, there's eight I think altogether uh, marking the and and then you can see the actual boundary is with the limestone and then the, where the terracotta tiles join them. That's uh, the boundary established by the monastic Sangha. And so this is coming from an ancient tradition uh, in India. It goes back 2,541 years. Uh, so it's quite, uh, you know, a way of establishing uh, an order uh, that uh, where the externals are all agreed on. Everything is is agreed on what you, the kind of way you wear your robe, uh, what you do with your hair, you just shave it off, and uh, you, um, no matter what class you might come from, or race, or whether you're male or female, you look pretty much the same in terms of uh, robe and, and uh, appearance. And th so this is a, a kind of the idea of renunciation, which in the Western world at this time must seem very strange because this modern life is one not of to renounce but to uh, acquire as much as you can. And uh, renunciation always implies kind of like uh, something wrong and uh, where the kind of philosophies that, go out, that tell us to go out and enjoy, uh, they're kind of appealing and inspiring. And then there's the ones that renounce, and they, they sound like wet blankets or kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, seeing the world as a sinful place that we must uh, renounce. But in Buddha Dhamma, this, is, this isn't how, this wasn't intended to be like. That the renunciation is 
is one of simplification to to remove ourselves from the complexity of a lot of possessions of having money property of uh, wife husband children uh, all the the things that that tend to uh, bind us and obsess our minds we we're letting go of those towards this uh, arms mendicancy so we d we don't have the idea of even having our own personal wealth our own bank account our <laughs> our own property you know is is goes against the whole kind of idea of this life because the aim is toward this uh, realization of nibbana now this realization is an internal thing it's not something you don't find that nibbana is some kind of place or or something that comes to you from outside but it, it's what we call a realization, an enlightenment, where you see, you, you, you kind of awaken, you, you wake up to realize the way things are. Where, say, before we awaken, we usually are highly conditioned to, see, to perceive things in various ways, on a highly personal, in a per very personal way. So, like the body, things of your physical body, culturally we're you know, in every culture, whether it's Asian or European, African or whatever, the idea is to identify with the body. I am this person, I look like this, I am a man or woman, depending on the gender of the body. And then all the, uh, whether it's attractive or unattractive or, or young, old, we identify with a whole lot in a highly personal way. <coughs> in modern uh, civilization, here, in, like in Western Europe, is very strongly identified with, uh, in a very with highly individual qualities. So we're very, we bind ourselves to to very kind of uh, self-centered conditions uh, that uh, that that increase this, this uh, sense of self-importance, me as a person, me as a personality. Uh, is very, very important. Yeah. And we become obsessed with ourselves, with what I think, what I look like, what I wear, what I've done, what I've achieved. And of course this, this leads to uh, the more selfish you become, the more alienated you feel. Because selfishness is obsession with, with yourself as a personality, as a physical body, uh, in whatever way you do it, it, it leads towards a, a, a sense of alienation, separation, division. Say in, uh, in say, societies that aren't so self-centered, uh, where your identity is maybe with a, with a group, with a family, uh, with an extended family, or with a tribe of people, or, then, of course, one, one is very much uh, uh, relating to, to including a larger number uh, in your perception of reality. But just speaking for myself, taking my own cultural conditioning, which was, I, I think, you know, uh, one very much based on self-importance. I am a unique individual, um, 
I am a, a personality, a unique soul. Even the sense of a soul as being a completely unique soul, not like my soul is like anyone else's. And so the sense of uniqueness of, of, uh, of individuality uh, gives you a sense of freedom for a while when you're young. It gives you uh, this feeling you can do anything you want. doesn't matter even what your parents think or that because it's, it's my life and I can do what I want with it is the way it goes. But then that in itself leads to uh, an increasing sense of loneliness, feeling lonely, I found anyway. And inability to uh, relate well in any profound way with any other being because uh, the, the perceptual uh, conditioning was very much uh, centered on me as the, uh, having primary importance. So that kind of suffering does bring us into, so many like Western people in the Sangha have experienced this. Our suffering isn't due to lack of privilege or being, uh, uh, you know, due to poverty or, or unfair uh, experiences in life particularly, but due to uh, a, a kind of intuitive feeling that something's wrong if we just operate from this highly conditioned level. We, there's an intuition, a sense beyond the sense that there's more to life than just me, my feelings, my body, my personality. Because this is a spiritual sense too, a sense of well, what Christians would call a sense of divinity or of God or, or something beyond just the um, me as a, as a person, as a personality. And this I call intuition, where you, it's, it's based not on logical reason. It's not, an, not because you've reasoned it out or you've actually seen something, but it's, it's, it's uh, intuition is the ability of the mind to, that when, it's, when, it's, when you're in a state of relaxed awareness in the present, when you're, when you're not trying to control grasp, manipulate, deny uh, everything around you or in, in that kind of, kind of obsession with yourself trying to get this or get rid of that. When you stop doing that, then your intuition is something you begin to recognize, a sense beyond the, the, the conditioning of your mind. In, like um, uh, discernment, Logic and reason uh, are discriminative functions. So they're always saying, you know, this is white, this is black, this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong. It, it divides. It says it's uh, aware of how one thing is bigger or smaller, better or worse than something else. And this is very much of what modern civilization is based on, isn't it? The, the modern education where we, we're very much conditioned to, to compare one thing with another. This is what should be and this shouldn't be. This is right, this is wrong, good and bad, high and low. Uh, and so we're, 
in the, say in the Western world or modern modern education everywhere, wherever what part of the planet it's on, is usually based on this, and uh, the result of it is we develop a kind of cleverness with our minds. We 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 develop intelligence to in a, in a certain way, but we're left with an endlessly discriminating obsession. We're always thinking there's something wrong, or there's something that we've got to do, something we've got to get that we don't have here, or something we've got to get rid of that we have that we shouldn't. Uh, we see ourselves, so like here, living here in uh, in England, um, there's a very common tendency to, to be obsessed with what's wrong with yourself, to take the flaw or the defect that you perceive about yourself and kind of really make a, a mountain out of it. Um, and become obsessed with your own faults uh, because uh, it's uh, this is we're always thinking that there's something wrong and we've got to make it right, and we think that that being admitting one's own faults might be a a kind of honesty, uh, and so uh, because of our idealism, we we kind of go over the top where we we become obsessed with with the flaw with the thing that's not right, with the smudge on the wall, with the uh, mole on the, on the uh, right knee. Intuition, and uh, how, I, how I use this word, is like with awareness. And the Buddha emphasize this use of awareness, mindfulness, intuition, intuitive awareness, which is, is a state of being fully present here and now, which isn't discriminating. It's aware, it's open and receptive, uh, it's embracing everything in the present. It's not, it's not particularly involved with, with a, this uh, making value judgments about what you're experiencing whether, you know, it's a pleasure or pain in your body or your emotion in state, whether you're feeling high or low emotionally or whether you're, you're peaceful or, or totally confused in the present or what the condition is on the emotional, intellectual or physical uh, condition of the present, intuition is, is accepting all of that as it is. So it's, it's our ability to, to pay attention to the way it is. And then they, in the meditation we're contemplating the impermanence of conditioned phenomena. This is a, a, the Buddhist um, uh, skillful means that he used uh, to help us to look and observe what we're actually experiencing without making any judgment about it. Because usually we do that, I mean, when we, if we're having pain in the body, then we, we make a judgment, oh, but I want to get rid of this pain, how can I get rid of it, I don't like it. Uh, and so one is caught in, the, in say, being averse, uh, negative, uh, toward uh, physical discomfort. Or you have maybe a, uh, some, some bad memories coming up, or emotional states of grief or despair or depression or whatever, and then you, uh, then you, 
you try you you make a judgment and you think this is I shouldn't feel like this I don't want to feel like this you resist you try to get rid of it where intuitive awareness allows whatever is present to be the way it is it's not not making any any judgment comments about it it's just aware it's like this so grief feels like this or or feeling high feeling low happy, sad, um, greedy, or angry, or jealous, or frightened, or whatever the emotion might be, we're contemplating that as experience, it's like this, and we're using this characteristic of impermanence as a way of, of looking at it without judging it. Because one thing, no matter what you're feeling right now, both physically or mentally, that it's impermanent, it's always changing. And when you look at what you're feeling uh, in the present, then you begin to notice this changingness. But if you're merely caught in your reactions, then you, you, you think, oh, I've got to get rid of this. And so you, you get busy trying to, to suppress or control or deny or run away or blame or whatever your, your, your tendencies are uh, to try to get away from the suffering or the misery. So the first noble truth, the Buddha taught, is there is this dukkha, this suffering. And the, the advice that he gave is to understand it. I mean, so if you understand something, you, you need to accept it. You can't understand every anything you're trying to get rid of, isn't it? If you're just trying to get rid of something, you, you can't understand it. You're just caught in reacting and, and resisting. So understanding means to really look at, at the, say, physical pain or discomfort or emotional despair or grief or whatever it might be. Uh, and, to, and this we can do through this intuitive awareness. Because then your mind isn't caught in reacting, but in accepting, in, in welcoming even, in a sense of welcoming and, and openness and receptivity to the, whatever you're experiencing in the present. So that's a completely different way of responding to experience, isn't it? So the conditioned way is to, when it's pleasant, then you... I want more, I want to keep this. When it's unpleasant, I want to get rid of it. So uh, this reactivity, uh, we're caught in this, in this reactivity, always trying to hold on to the, the good and the pleasant and trying to get rid of the painful and the unpleasant. Where intuitive awareness isn't reactive, it's responding in a way that is non-judgmental, welcoming, willing to understand, willing to let things be what they are, even if they're horrible, we're still willing to let horribleness be what it is. And just by changing one's attitude in that way, then we find that, uh, that a lot of the anxiety, worry, fears that we have that haunt our lives begin to fade out when, we're, when we change our attitude from control, manipulation, resistance, denial, running away towards embracing, towards 
understanding. Now, like this uh, ceremony today, it's, uh, it's interesting to, to just observe how uh, this is a very ancient ceremony. And uh, someone asks to enter the, the Sangha and, and the Sangha agrees, has to agree among it, amongst itself. Uh, and then, uh, then the acceptance means that, that we live our lives within the structures, the conventions of this tradition. And it's interesting, you know, coming, living in the, excuse me, in a non-Buddhist country, uh, that, like uh, here in Britain, uh, in an ancient tradition, <coughs> because there are so many opinions and views going on in the Buddhist world here in Britain about tradition. And um, they think, you know, that, well, it's Asian tradition or it's old-fashioned, there's all these kind of ways of, of looking at it as if uh, you know, either that supports it, makes it somehow authentic, or it can be disparaging. It can be mean that it's old-fashioned, doesn't work anymore, not not appropriate to this culture or this age. Or we can use our traditional form as somehow we're we're carrying on a purity, uh, uh, and it's somehow better than than someone else's who who might not have the the clear lines. Uh, that we we claim we have, and so the um, the different forms of Buddhism and schools of Buddhism oftentimes get very confusing to people because um, they you know they they one can uh, you know think that there's this kind of logic to it, isn't it? This is an old tradition, and this is a modern country, and so old traditions, modern country. Uh, it's from uh, Asia, uh, from Thailand, Sri Lanka, and uh, this is modern Europe, and we can go on and, and we think we've, we need to Europeanize it or make it more English. In fact, the, the group that invited me to England is called the English Sangha Trust. And uh, I mean, there was, it was originated in 1956. And, and then they began to realize that England was a bit small-minded, and then they found people from Wales and Scotland wanting, and that, that, that somehow having the English Sangha Trust up in Scotland or in Wales was not always politically correct. So there was a movement for a while called the, the, they call it the EST, English Sangha Trust. Now they can call it the European Sangha Trust. <laughs> <laughs> The euro, euros, <laughs> one currency, one tongue. <laughs> Me with the times. But these are the the the, um, the the way the mind tends to 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 limit itself always with the with the particular perceptual conditioning that we have that we've acquired. So in in Asian countries or European countries or in the States or wherever, there's always one tends to interpret experience through the filter of our own perceptual conditioning. Now this, uh, oftentimes we can distort experience a lot uh, because 
of an abs modern Buddhism fits into some of the categories of modern psychology. So it gets kind of very uh, psychotherapeutic in some ways. Uh, or you can, you can take the Buddha out of Buddhism. You get Zen or Vipassana, kind of a uh, em emasculated form. I regret saying that, I know. <laughs> but yeah, you're kind of taking away the, 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 in the West anyway, taking away the, 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 the actual um, symbols and structures to, to get the ideal, uh, to take hold of the ideal. Or the, or the, um, or the particular method like vipassana, uh, say in Theravada Buddhism, uh, it can be it can be identified with a method of meditation, highly organized method. But in in terms of what we're actually doing, if you're if you're uh, developing awareness, practicing awareness, is you're getting you're beginning to realize the pure nature of being and consciousness in the present, before it gets conditioned, before you become English or Asian or become a man or woman. It, as, you, as you open the mind, say, to a state of pure attention, that's the state where before the conditioning process has taken place, there's pure, a kind of pure intelligence. Uh, it's not a cultivated learning like uh, going to university and getting uh, degrees from learning through, uh, through uh, learning about various other subjects. But it's a natural intelligence that we begin to take refuge in. And this is what I call the refuge in the Buddha. We say, Bhutan Sarnangachami, this, this sense of refuge in that state. It's a we begin to, a refuge is a place you can rest, relax, take it easy. It's not a place that, that you know, that is uh, dangerous or, or false. So, considering what in this moment can really be a refuge for you. You think the temple, well, it could easily, earthquake, bomb might fall on it, or, you know, whatever you, whatever conditions in your good health, you know how temporary good health can be, or in uh, your relationship with somebody else, and then that can fall apart very quickly, or the uh, uh, the burgeoning economy. We know how quickly that can change, <laughs> or in the profession, or the or the money in the bank, or whatever. But all the, 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 but in a real refuge, then in terms of Buddha, say, in the present moment, is what that really means is, in my experience, from my uh, insights, is the state of pure attention. It's like listening, like being in a state of pure listening without judging without thinking, where the mind's just resting in a state of alertness, alert, poised attention. And, and so that, that is a refuge that, that we can use, because 
what I might be feeling emotionally might not may, may be very upsetting or or unpleasant. But if I begin to really take refuge, then I can accept what I'm feeling, even if it is unwanted and unpleasant. I can I begin to change my relationship to it from resistance and blame to acceptance. And then that allows me to see, to observe its impermanence. So refuge in Buddha, refuge in Dhamma, the, the ability, the Dhamma is the truth of the way it is. Now all conditions are impermanent. That's just the way it is. We, when we, we investigate impermanence, we're not just trying to believe in the theory of impermanence, but, but observing it, noticing it, feeling it, and I find now, having done this for so many years, it's just uh, suddenly the, this sense of, of uh, change is so obvious, so, so, uh, so very real, uh, that, that there seems to be a timelessness to life now, rather than a, than, and a, and a sense of a real future. Uh, where before, when I was operating from my conditioned mind much more than the future seemed very important. What, what would happen in the future? Or the past? But now, they, the sense of this timelessness or eternity in the present. So, what we're taking refuge in is, uh, is say, the deathless reality, the pure intelligence the, uh, that we can tune into that we can connect to through awareness. Not through thought or through logic or reason, but through attentiveness, through paying attention, through an openness, like a wide openness. My other is a sense of embracing, wide, rather than shutting everything out. Like when I, when I open wide like this, uh, I somehow in something in me is in a receptive state. Where when I want to get rid and control, and I and I close my eyes and I shut down everything. I close off and try to limit everything, control it. So when in my when my emotional nature, my emotional habits would tend to want to be very controlling. I, I'm afraid of the unknown or something strange or or dreading the possibilities of failure in the future, or of aging, or, or you know, illness, or pain, or loss, or something in the future that uh, want to control, want to hold, and, and uh, make solid something. Where the embracing quality to the mind is, is, isn't, isn't making deals with anyone, isn't, isn't uh, trying to uh, control anything. One of the things that when uh, the monk Dhyavangsa, he asked me, he said after when he came back to take the Upasamadha, he said, uh, which, which translates into English, uh, I am your burden and you are my burden. He is saying to me, I am your burden. And, and, and he's taking me on as his burden. So I said, do you know what you're getting into, taking me on as your burden? 
I don't know him very well. <laughs> <laughs> and that word burden, then it has a it has a, a pejorative meaning. You know, it's unpleasant. Burden something you want to get rid of. So I remember th thinking for many years. I mean, performed this ceremony for about uh, nearly twenty years now. Every time this burden part comes in, I kind of cringe. I think oh, no, more burdens, you know, because the the self-centered part of me, the conditioned view, sees sees things a, a burden as something that I don't want. And so the very word itself uh, gives that sense of, uh, of being weighed down by something heavy. So I'm changing my, my attitude towards the word burden, when which was, if you look at it in a, in a, as a burden, something that weighs you down and makes your life difficult, then you just want to resist, you know, I don't, had enough, I've done enough, no more burdens, go find somebody else. <laughs> or, or then, then the means I came, burden, another burden, open your arms wide, oh, great, you are my burden, and it's kind of like a welcoming. And that felt rather good, actually, because suddenly that, that kind of meanness of heart, you know, that, that wants to control and limit and and uh, and sees life in terms of in, in terms of those values, that suddenly dropped, and there was this, this embracing quality, which was much which was felt really good, you know, and intuitively the heart felt kind of relieved and and uh, and and uh, joyful, rather than weighed down by another uh, possibility for unhappiness, responsibility. So in meditation, on this retreat, some of you on this retreat, the Ajahnatapemo said, contemplate this how, in, you know, we have the ability to change our, I mean, we are conditioned to see things in certain ways and and uh, and and we get when we get caught into those percep perceptual patterns, then in, in meditating rightly, we're actually letting go of those patterns into the state of awareness, where you're you're tuning into the pure intelligence, universal, rather than personal conditioning, personal cultural conditioning, or personal education achievements. Because this state of pure attention, pure awareness, is, isn't cultural. It isn't Asian or European or male or female. It's before those things begin. Those identities we acquire, don't we? We're born, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I never, I was born in the United States. Uh, and I found out later, after I was born, that I was an American. It wasn't the a thought in my mind when I was first born. Of her. And my, my sister, she was two years older, she had to explain what it meant being an American, because I didn't know what it, what it meant at first. I was born in, in Seattle, Washington State, in America. My sister, being a smart, smarty, <laughs> she went to school for and she'd come and she'd try to educate me, and she'd say, She'd say, we live in Seattle, which is in Washington State, which is in America. And I couldn't figure all that out, you know. 
which comes first, uh, America or Seattle? <laughs> well, after a while, it all, you know, became ordinary. I mean, everybody knows that. You know, everybody who's anybody, any idiot knows. Seattle is in Washington State, Washington State is in America. <laughs> and that was a, that's acquired knowledge, isn't it? That's not the truth of the way it is. That's perceptual, cultural conditioning. You ask an American, uh, Native American about that, and you probably have a whole different way of perceiving it. And they, uh, so that, and then you, you boys are like this, and boys act like this, girls act like this, and you get the, and the, you, you, you know, what little girls, good girls are like, little boys, what good boys are like, and all the rest, and according to your kind of class identities. And your mother and father, what they think and feel, and so forth. So you acquire, but in and and then this, this, these kind of acquired perceptions become our experience of life. We we experience life through this filter of of perception that's acquired after birth. So in meditation, what you're returning to is original mind before it gets conditioned, pure intelligence before it before we, we acquire perceptual uh, uh, patterns that uh, distort, that filter, that, that pervert or, or change experience. So meditation, we're getting back to that original purity of being that we forget and we, you know, as, as children, we, we still have that you know, with children up to a certain age, unless they're terribly abused or shocked, they have a certain kind of uh, reflectiveness and and uh, there's a kind of openness and receptivity that we we identify as innocence. They might call it innocence um, up to a certain age, and then we then we become very kind of fixed in our in our sense of ourself as an ego, as a person personality. Uh, and then as we get older, if we don't break through that, then we, we get stuck yeah, until we die with, uh, with the old patterns that we've acquired. And, and they're inadequate to deal with the experience of life uh, as we have to experience it. It's just the aging process. We all have to get old. And with dealing with the experiences of loss, isn't it? Part of our human experience is losing. We all have to experience loss of loved ones, death or separation. Uh, grief is a, is a ordinary, is a normal human emotion that we all experience in our lifetimes. And despair and, and uh, jealousies and fears and and anxiety and worry and greed and lust and and um, obsessive tendencies take us over and we, we get whirled into that. We either, you know, we have to take, if it gets too bad, we take to drink or drugs or do things to, to, to just distract the mind. Or meditation, which is taking us back to what we say, our original home that state of purity, of pure awareness, that is the refuge available to us at every moment if we begin to 
recognize that and uh, and begin to trust it, appreciate it. You can't believe and trust in your own views about yourself. Don't believe me, but contemplate this. What you think you are and who you think you are and, and uh, all this, you can't trust it. It's all conditioned out of ignorance. <laughs> but anyway, explore it. Don't, don't believe this either. But I find, from my experience, all that, that I think I am and, and identify with, I don't believe in it. My emotions can go on. They can, uh, I've watched my emotional habits for years now. They go on about, I don't like this and I can't stand that and I'm fed up with this and and I don't agree with that, and that's not right, and that's wrong, and this person shouldn't be like that, and they shouldn't have said that, and go on like that. And I'm right sometimes, sometimes I'm wrong, but whatever it is, I don't believe it, right or wrong. Because there's a part of me that I trust, which is, isn't going on like that. That is aware of that whole kind of reactive emotional uh, habits that I've acquired. And I trust that in that pure awareness, not in the emotional conditioning that I, that I have. But that pure awareness isn't judging the emotional conditioning either. It's not saying it's rubbish or, or putting any kind of, of uh, negative judgment towards it, but it's recognizing it is what it is in its arises and ceases, and it's not self, it's anatta. It's not me, it's not what I am. So it's, uh, you know, this is, uh, this teaching dates back to 2,541 years. So it sounds like a very modern teaching, doesn't it? <laughs> to me it does. Uh, it always surprised me how modern Buddhism seemed when, and I kept thinking, but it's so old. It's older than Christianity. Older than Islam. Seems to me, it seems like very old, you know, 2,541 years. What was England like 2,541 years? <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, it was, uh, but that, at that time, my, 500 B.C., there seemed to be a kind of wisdom uh, developing, in, in, in not just in India, but in places like Greece and China and, and Persia, and, and there seemed to be, a, 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 at that period of time, the wisdom, uh, the sages, there seemed to be a number of, of wisdom teachings. Buddhism, the Buddha based, is a very pragmatic style and, and not uh, theological. So in many ways Buddhism is, is, uh, is an enigma to modern uh, religions in terms of trying to fix it as a religion because it, it, it isn't coming from, a, a, from a, the top, like most religions come from a theology. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, the proclamation, uh, I believe in God, or the ultimate, some kind of statement about the ultimate. 
And but the, the Buddhist, Buddhist teaching was based on the common uh, kind of banal experience of suffering. It's an existential condition that we all have. It's nothing special. So, the, but it's a noble truth rather than a theological truth. So recognize that you, you're starting with, when, when you're practicing Buddhist meditation, you're, you're actually going to something very ordinary. It doesn't have to be any, any fantastic form of suffering that you're experiencing. <laughs> Just the irri being irritated or frustrated or whatever. In a, in from minor to major. But the, uh, the suffering is then understood, it's investigated. And through looking and understanding your own suffering, you realize the way of non-suffering, or the deathless reality. Because the, the uh, aim is to realize Nibbana, or to realize the deathless, to know directly. Not believe in a theory about immortality, but to directly know through direct insight a deathless reality. And that's the, the aim and the purpose of the Buddhist teachings around the, the essential teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Today was a very uh, uh, significant day because this temple now is, um, for those of us who live here, it's uh, it's a really wonderful place to, to be in. And uh, then w w uh, the Thai artist, Kun Pang, Jinathai, had created these, these guardian angels. They will be uh, out in the entrance on each side of the door, the, in the entrance hall. And of course, you know, these, these look like Thai angels, don't they? They don't have wings <laughs> and harps, <laughs> and they're not very white, white robes. Um, but these are uh, the the kind of guardian deities, which which are a symbol of of uh, when we put ourselves into this practice. Then then one has this sense of being. around me that I never felt before. Now, this is just my own intuitive feeling. Uh, that w when I was, before I became a monk, I was, I was about 32 when I ordained. And, and my life was going, was falling apart at that age. Uh, I was, uh, it seemed like everything was going wrong. And my my uh, kind of hopes that I'd had for life when I was young was uh, completely disappointed, disillusioned. So everything seemed to be, nothing seemed to be working very well. And then I went to Thailand and became a monk and suddenly it all started, everything seemed to, doors opened wide and all kinds of opportunities. Found a very good teacher and, and the whole kind of, uh, uh, kind of, way seemed to kind of open up in a, in a very 
almost like miracles. And of course, one could just take this as, you know, not, not merely uh, see the significance of it or exaggerate its meaning, but, but just to, com to, to use these images here of these devas, these angels, as the, kind of the beauty and the goodness of the universe that we live in. When we, when we open to the universe, rather than trying to control it, manipulate it, when we begin to trust in the purity of our own being present, uh, then it seems like this, this, this protectiveness, uh, these good forces, we, we feel connected to that again. And out of this kind of alienated, isolated loneliness that, that, uh, that, that say can hang around our, in our minds when we're caught in just uh, the obsessions with ourselves. This temple it itself was like a gift. Uh, it, it was, uh, uh, you know, one had never thought of building uh, such a, a building and the expense and the kind of all that, that went into to doing it and yet looking back it all seemed to, to kind of flow in a natural way. Um, the, the kind of people were very generous in donating funds so we, we had no debts or anything like that to deal with. Uh, and then they um, just the, the fact that during the time that it was being built, was people kept saying, oh, it must be terrible, all those, like a construction site, living on a construction site. And, and I think, no, it was fascinating, because you, you know, I'd never seen anyone build a building in a building like this, all this kind of oak uh, structure, and all that kind of materials were, were interesting. And, and for many of you who look at this oak, oak structure and see the cracks in it, don't worry about it, they're supposed to be there. That, that's part of the decor. You learn to, to love cracks as you, as you open your mind. And, and the, you see, the, the, the now view is that it shouldn't have any cracks. But now I've learned to accept cracks because the, it's a green oak, and that's that's part of it. Is is that you know, it uh, it uh, is in the process of shrinking, but it's also cut in a certain way that it will not kind of go off. It's quite it's quite an art that that they're reviving here in in England. This, this green oak uh, structure using pegs, and everything is measured perfectly. So when you you look at the oak structure itself, it's quite beautifully made uh, and, and because it's uh, quite precise and, and all that is necessary is taken into account so that it, it is uh, a structure which holds up this very heavy roof, tiled roof. But also, in uh, a temple, uh, I was in uh, uh, you know, in like in, in Prague last year. And then this year I went to Vienna and we went to this kind of Baroque churches and cathedrals and enormously kind of elaborate uh, works of art, you know, with everything decorated, every, not a, a plain spot in the whole 
in, the, in any of these churches, everything is gilded or painted uh, and beautifully done, you know, marble and inlaid marble and all the rest. But something in me doesn't, doesn't like that anymore, doesn't, doesn't want to be, my eyes to be continuously busy with, with forms. And so uh, what I find, and what the reason we chose a lot of materials here, because they are quite simple and natural things, like oak. And you don't have to, you don't have to paint it or varnish it. You just leave it like that. And uh, the bricks, they are kind of handmade, uh, non-manufactured bricks, so that they all have uh, kind of their own uh, quality. Each brick. And then the, the limestone floor and the terracotta piled floor and the the, the 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 materials are kind of earthy and and simple and and beautiful in their own right. So, and this to a meditator is very restful to the mind. It's, it tends to give you a sense of being in a in a very natural place, rather than a highly kind of cosmetic, highly decorated. Uh, kind of environment. Now this, these are just my my observations, my feelings. I don't about sharing them with you, so you can begin to understand maybe why we particularly chose the materials and the style of building. Also, the, it's a it's a, taking into account the the country it's in. So you have the uh, it's like almost a barn-like building, but with a with a uh, um, uh, a stupa, a chebi on top, a spire based on the kind of Lao Northeast Thai style four-sided stupa, and we had it cast in Thailand uh, two years ago, and that is a kind of recognition of our roots in. Uh, in the Isan, Northeast Thailand, uh, which we, you know, I personally feel a lot of gratitude to teachers like uh, Lung Po Cha and that, from having, uh, the, you know, from his own example of of, uh, of a wise and liberated human being and his life within the within the society and the the of a, of say the northeast Thai, Thailand, which in those days when I lived there it was quite it was a very third world kind of place. There wasn't electricity in any of the monasteries, very kind of basic. And yet the quality of life was superlative within those monasteries, you know, because they were based on morality and on uh, on uh, generosity on uh, meditation practice. So it was, uh, one began to recognize what is really important. What is really, what gives life its beauty, its joy. I, I learned that through living in Forest Monastery in Northeast Thailand, which was, you know, in terms of uh, modern Western world, is very primitive. I realized, you know, that it didn't, that, the material things weren't really very important. But the, the mental, how we responded, how we looked at, how we related, what we learned from life, this we can, this we can do. Whether you're in 
third world country or modern country, uh, high tech situation or just a very primitive uh, low tech situation. These <laughs> aren't terribly important. It's how what we what we learn, how we respond, how we we uh, uh, use the conditions around us for this awareness, opening the heart, trusting, resting in that pure state, and and then uh, examining, seeing all conditions are impermanent. And realizing that you're not any conditioned thing. You're not a personality or a human body or a man or woman or a European or an Asian or anything like that. Or, or a, this type or that type, good or bad. But you're, you're in realizing the true nature. So I offer this as a reflection for you for today. And I have here some calendars for 1998 for free distribution. Also some posters, old posters of the temple. This is not an exact replica, but it's quite an attractive poster if anyone wants one. Like that. These, and then uh, there's also Ajahn Sajito's book, which was printed for free distribution. It's a magnificent work of art, and just because I'm giving it away free, I'm giving it away free because it's priceless, not worthless. <laughs> you know the difference. <laughs> <laughs> So I'll end here, and then uh, if you want any of these, uh, please come up, and I shall provide them. <laughs>